Those of you sitting way in the back, can you hear me okay? Yes? Okay. Francie, can you hear me better? Okay, good. All right. If there's anybody that I want to hear me, it's you. We're in Luke chapter 1. We're continuing with the birth narratives. And uh, we began uh, last week in looking at the announcement of the birth of Jesus by Gabriel to Mary. And I want us to pick up the account again with verse 26. Read, read it again with me, if you would. And then we'll uh, continue in our uh, discussion of the passage. Verse 26 In the sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what that kind of greeting might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will be with child and give birth to a son. You are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and will be called Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who was said to be barren is in her sixth month. For nothing is impossible with God. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May it be to me as you have said. And then the angel left her. Now it's interesting to me that um, Luke places this birth announcement of Jesus right after the birth announcement of John the Baptist. And he does so not just for chronological reasons, but also, I think, to draw some some similarities and contrasts. So here's the angel appearing to two people. Boys are announced who are going to be born and, and so forth, and their ministry is described. So there are similarities, but there are also contrasts. And there's one significant contrast that I'm going to emphasize. The announcement of John the Baptist's birth shows the Lord answering the prayer of an elderly couple. And then he blesses them and blesses the barren womb of Elizabeth with a healthy son. The announcement was a public one, so to speak. It was in the temple. It was to an official in Israel, a priest, Zechariah. So this is a, this is a pretty heady thing. It was an occasion, verse 57, tells us after John's birth, it was an occasion for great rejoicing. So this is a fairly public event, if you will. In contrast, the announcement of Jesus' birth was not public. It was private. It was not to some public important official. It was rather to a person of low position in Israel. In fact, it was to a young woman, and more particularly, from our context, a young girl. 12, 13 years old. And this was an occasion for Mary to reaffirm her commitment to the Lord's will. 
where John the Baptist was described by Gabriel as great in the eyes of the Lord, Jesus was simply described as great. He was described as the Son of the Most High and as an heir to an everlasting kingdom. Where John's birth was remarkable because of the advanced age of Zechariah and Elizabeth, Jesus' birth was miraculous because Mary, quite frankly, was a virgin. Tremendous contrast here. But the clearest contrast, and I think one of the most significant contrasts, between these two birth accounts is the different ways Zechariah and Mary responded to Gabriel. Their response is different. And herein, I think we can, we can draw a lesson. Unlike Zechariah, Mary did not doubt the message. While Zechariah asked how he could be certain that his wife would bear a child, Mary simply believed and submitted herself to the Lord's will. And she did so simply with these words, I am the Lord's servant. She not only took Gabriel's statement, nothing is impossible with God as her confession of faith. Now think about that. Should that be our confession of faith? Instead of woe is me, woe is me, and worry and fretful and fearful, nothing is impossible with God. She also anticipated the Lord working out His will in her life. She had no doubt that God was at work in her life. She said, may it be done to me as you have said. I have no doubt that God is at work in your life right now, Victoria. He is at work. He's at work in the life of your kids. Isn't that exciting? that give you hope? Hallelujah. Somebody say hallelujah. God's at work. All of us can take heart. We can anticipate that God is at work in our lives. And with those words, Mary would commit herself to facing the hardships that obeying God would entail. The ridicule, the disgrace that she would inevitably face for carrying a baby whose father was unknown. When you say, yes, Lord, let it be done unto me, as you have said, you have just, you have just signed on for trial and difficulty and hardship, suffering and persecution. Have you not? Jesus said, we are going to have tribulation in this life. Most of us want to become Christians and we want to have everything go smoothly and no problems. Is that true? Oh, Lord, just protect me from all the nastiness. No, I want to place you right in the middle of it. How many have discovered that? You see, when, when you say, yes, Lord... You, you, you have just given your life over to him. But he's not going to leave you alone. You must believe that. We live by faith in what he tells us. Many believers today sadly follow Zechariah's example. They want, they want some backup plan. They want 
to see some evidence. They want some validation. The Bible tells us we live by faith, not by sight. It's very real and very human for us to want some sight, if you will, some circumstance that will validate we're on the right path. Isn't that true? But we live not on the basis of those things. We live on the basis of what God's Word tells us. This is why it's so important you read your Bible. So you're not lost. You're not all over the map. You know what He says. And you can, not to coin a new phrase, you can stand on His Word. You can say, Lord, Your Word says, I trust You. Mary's example was a simple demonstration of faith. Belief that there's a God for whom nothing is impossible. And humbly submit to His will, even if it means facing hardship. Yes, Lord. Any hardship is worth enduring when He's with you, isn't it? I'm not alone. I am not alone in this. You may feel alone, but you feel alone because sometimes you think you're alone. When, in fact, if you say, I'm not alone, you're not going to feel alone. Does that make sense? How can you know you're not alone? Because he says what? I am with you in all things. I'll never leave you, never forsake you. Somebody say hallelujah. I mean, when the going gets tough... God, thank you that you're with me. Thank you that you're working in me. Thank you that you're working in this circumstance. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Man, it almost makes you want to have a worship service right there, doesn't it? (laughs) Now, after Gabriel tells Mary what's about to happen, he's going to summarize the entire ministry of Jesus for her, and he's going to do so in three verses. Verse 31, 32, and 33. Imagine summarizing Jesus' entire ministry in three verses. He's going to tell her of his saving work, his righteous life, the fact that he's God in the flesh, his resurrection, his ascension, his glorious return, and his kingdom rule, all within the context of those three verses. He begins with the command to give him a name. What's the name that he's to have? Jesus. Verse 31. Jesus is the Greek form of the Hebrew Yeshua. Yeshua simply means, translated simply means God saves. And so introducing now the reality of Jesus' saving work. Our God is a saving God. Say that with me. Our God is a saving God. He's not a mean old curmudgeon. He is gracious, merciful, compassionate, forgiving to a thousands and thousands of generations, the Bible tells us. Our God is a saving God. Luke says in chapter 19, later on in his gospel, that it was to seek and to save what was lost that Jesus came into the world. He knows that we're desperate. He knows that we're desperate. And it's his purpose to save that which is lost. And his saving work is, if you will, the central theme of the New Testament. 
His saving work. Nothing else. His saving work. That's a central theme. Sometimes people want to make the New Testament out of other things. No, it's a saving work of Jesus. Our greatest need is the need for salvation. To be saved from sin, death, hell, and Satan in his power. And that's what Jesus came to do. To set us free. How many, how many, how many like the idea of being set free? I'm set free. You know, it's fascinating to me. All of the stuff going on in the Arab countries now, you know, the, all the, and you can argue the politics of it all and the, and the rationale, but the, but the average guy in the street, there's, there's something that, respond, that he's responding to, and that's the call to freedom. He lived under a despot for years and years and years, and now all of a sudden there's a freedom. Now, they have no idea what that's like, and they have no idea what democracy is like. It's freedom. We want to be free. And Jesus came to set us free. Somebody say hallelujah to that one. Amen. Now Gabriel then will tell Mary that her son Jesus will be great. I, I love this. It's, it's the, the understatement here I think is fascinating. He will be great. He'll be great. Do we have words, do you think, in our English language to describe, really, Jesus? His magnificence, his glory, his greatness. No, our language falls way far short, doesn't it? Way far short. They're just simply inadequate. May I suggest to you that his life will define great. His life will define great. It's like your life and my life defines who we are, doesn't it? I mean, some people can describe us, and most people do describe us one way or another, and, you know, and mixed descriptions sometimes. But the reality is what? Our life defines who we are. His life will define his greatness. You can't simply put him in an easily descriptive box. Unlike John the Baptist, whose greatness was qualified, it was qualified as being in the eyes of the Lord. Jesus' greatness is unqualified. He is great in and of himself. He's just great. Just great. And his greatness is intrinsic to his very nature as God. It is not derived from any other source outside of himself, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1, verse, 27, or verse 21, Jesus Christ is far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the age to come. He is far above everything. He is great. I think the true measure of his greatness may be seen in his sharing of God's glory. Isaiah, speaking for God, says in chapter 42, verse 8, he says, I will not give my glory to another. Are you aware of that passage? I will not give my glory to another. I'm not going to share my glory with anybody. Well, what about Jesus? What about Jesus? 
you remember in Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah has this vision of God in the temple? And the result is he's convicted of his uncleanness and he says, Woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. He sees the, the glory of God filling the temple. The train of the Lord fills the temple. She's this magnificent vision. The Apostle John refers to that very vision. In John chapter 12, verse 41, here's what John says commenting on Isaiah's vision. These things Isaiah said because he saw the glory of him and spoke of him. Now in the Greek text, you only have the, the pronouns, the personal pronouns there. You don't have any other name. But John clearly, if you understand the context from that passage, John is clearly referencing, who do you think? Jesus. John is saying, Isaiah saw the glory of Jesus. Oh, man, I thought that God doesn't give his glory to anyone. I thought God doesn't share his glory with anybody. John could say that when Isaiah viewed God's glory in the temple, he saw the glory of Christ because Christ shares the Father's glory. Jesus possesses the glory of God because as the Son of the Most High, he possesses the very nature of God. So then of necessity, he, he shares in the glory. Why? Because he has the very nature of God. This is an argument for the deity of Christ. Right there in those verses. To identify Jesus as the Son of the Most High is simply to affirm that he is of the same essence as God. He is of the same stuff. Substance, if you will. In the words of Hebrew chapter 1, verse 3, this is a marvelous verse. Years ago, I remember discovering this verse. I thought, wow. Listen to what the writer of Hebrews says. He says, the sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. <gasps> wow. If you want to know what God is like, where do you look? To Jesus. Jesus himself tells us in uh, John chapter 10, verse 30, he says, I and the Father are one. That's not one person. We are one in terms of substance or essence. There's a lot of people confused about the Trinity. Three persons, one God. Father, Son, Spirit. All of the same substance. All of the same essence. And so Jesus claims himself. He says, I and the Father are one. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. This amazing child to be born to Mary would be God in the flesh. Try to wrap your mind around that. I mean, most of us have been Christians for a long time, and, and so we just kind of take this for granted. God in the flesh, the creator of everything, the omnipotent God is going to take on flesh. Perfectly righteous in every way. Perfectly righteous in every thought, word, and deed. He would die as a sinless sacrifice. He would provide himself as a substitute for us, for sinners. Offering his atoning death to save us from our sins. 
Do we deserve this? Not at all. Does it just, you just have to be in utter awe of what God has done and what Jesus was willing to do. Here I am, Lord, send me. Much as Mary says, I am your servant. Let it be to me as you said. So he would die an atoning death. But that's not the end of the story. The angel goes on to tell her that he would not remain dead, but he would rise, and he would rise to reign. And of his kingdom there would be no end. Isn't that glorious? One day, one day, it's all going to be consummated. One day, he's going to reign on this earth. One day, all this is going to be done. Can you hardly wait? The culmination of Jesus' work will come, the angel says, when the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. I don't know about you, but if, if I got an angel telling me this, <laughs> my mind would go, <laughs> would you be a bit overwhelmed by all this? She had to be. But then she asks, Ask this fascinating question. Verse 34. What's the question she asks? How are we going to do this? Now, she's not asking out of doubt. She's not unbelieving. There's no incredulity here. She simply doesn't know how this is going to happen. She knows that if she's going to have a child, that only happens one way. She says, well, how's this going to happen since I'm a virgin? She believed what Gabriel said, but just simply did not understand how it was going to happen. We, 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 we can ask the same question. That's not doubt. You know, we know God is working on our behalf. We know God's working in our life. And sometimes we're faced with a set of circumstances that's just crazy. We say, God, I don't know how you're going to do this. But somewhere in that, in that statement is belief that he's going to do it. Not, I don't believe you can do this. Or I believe you would. Lord, I know, I know. I don't know how, but I know you're at work. Isn't that great? Wow. She says, okay, how's this going to happen? Is this going to be cool? Here's what he tells her. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. If you go back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, you see the Holy Spirit hovering over the waters. It's, it's like the Holy Spirit comes over the void. So the Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit who was involved in the creation of the world, the original agent of creation would again become an agent of creation, but he'd become the agent of creation this time in Mary's womb. Is anything too hard for God? All God's Spirit has to do is speak and it comes to pass. 
Let there be light. The whole electromagnetic spectrum comes into existence. Whoa, go for go bless Alan. Wow, look at that, God. Let there be a fetus in this womb. There's no other explanation. We we have all sorts of technological and scientific ways to create fetuses today, don't we? We're very clever, aren't we? In vitro and, and all that sort of thing. Test tube babies and such. I mean, if we can do that, is it so hard for God to say boom? The Holy Spirit, who is the agent of creation, will come upon you. And then he says, the power of the Most High will overshadow you. God himself was going to look after the whole matter. The, the child's conception, growth during pregnancy, his birth, his life, were all under the shadow of God Almighty. Remember Psalm 91? Psalm 91, verse 1. What does it say? He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will what? Rest in the shadow of the Almighty. The language is so similar here. God is sovereign. He's going to watch over this whole process. It was God's power. Not the power of the presence of the angel, not the power of the presence of any man. This is God's power. It's the same power that overshadows our life. It's the same power that guards our life. That divine creative miracle guaranteed that two things would be true of Mary's son. These are absolutely essential. The two things are first, that he would be a holy child. A holy child. Unlike any other infant, any other child ever conceived or born. Everyone who has ever lived, with the sole exception of the Lord Jesus Christ, has been born a sinner. I know that may do something to your sense of self-image. I'm sorry, but that's the truth. David, in Psalm 51, illustrates this when he says, Surely I have been a sinner from birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Conception. We are by nature fallen beings. Imperfect. We are by nature sinners. That's why we sin. We can't do anything else. We have to be given a brand new nature. This is what it means to be born again. God plants his nature in me so that now I can, in fact, overcome the things of this life. The second, the second thing that, that this miraculous announcement and birth uh, will demonstrate is that he had to be not only a holy child, but he had to be the perfect holy son of God. 
because his nature is that of the Holy One himself, God the Father. Jesus is by nature, remember, the Son of God manifested in flesh. He is the exact representation of God's being. So not only, he's not just a holy child. He is the holy Son of God. Essential for the work that he's been sent to do. Now, though Mary didn't explicitly ask for a sign to validate all this stuff, to remove any doubt about what's going to happen, God does graciously give her a sign. What sign does he give her? What sign does he give her to strengthen her faith, to encourage her? Elizabeth. He points her to Elizabeth. Her older relative, Elizabeth. He says, even Elizabeth. Now, do you suppose that Mary knew that her relative Elizabeth was along in years? Auntie Elizabeth. Dear sweet Auntie Elizabeth. We all have aunties, don't we like that? Do you suppose that Mary knew that she was beyond childbearing age? I think so. So the angel says to her, even Elizabeth, your relative, who can't have kids, even Elizabeth is in her sixth month. Those words, I think, are designed to underscore to Mary that Gabriel's words, things he's spoken to Mary, are going to come to pass. Even Elizabeth. And she'll go up and check Elizabeth out. We'll... We'll, we'll look at that passage another time. But Gabriel's words now are trustworthy. You know, it's one thing to say something is going to happen, but it's a whole other thing to make it happen, isn't it? Right? I mean, wives, you know this. Every wife knows this. Husband says, I'll take care of it. I'll take care of it. I'll take care of it. Any wives ever heard that? <laughs> I'll take the trash out, don't worry. It'll get out. I'll fix the screen door. It'll, it'll, be, it'll be taken care of. It seems like it never gets taken care of. And mama finally has to take care of it. That's our experience in life. Not so with God. God says something's going to happen. It's going to happen. It is going to happen. What Mary heard was she realized humanly impossible, but Gabriel, Gabriel encouraged her that because of God's unlimited sovereign power, nothing is impossible with him. Nothing. And again, the proof Gabriel offered was Elizabeth's pregnancy. With men... Much is impossible, isn't it? As competent as we are, as accomplished as, as we are as people, human beings, there's much that, that's just beyond our reach. When Mary heard and meditated on the simple fact that all things are possible with God, she had to be absolutely encouraged. I don't know about you, but, but when I have opportunity to encourage people or to spend time with people, and they're in a really tough place. To be able to say to them, all things are possible with God. To open the scriptures to them and show them God's word, God's truth, and God's promise. 
hold on. All things are possible for him. It is so, such a joy to see them lifted up, encouraged by the hope all things are possible with God. We can trust God to perform every promise He makes. Every promise He makes, He will perform it. He will do it at His own time and in His own way, but it will come to pass. I don't know about you, but like I want it right now. His timing is just perfect, isn't it? And the way He does things. You ever look back with 2020 hindsight? I would have never, ever done it that way. But that is, what, the way he did that was so cool. We get all uptight and anxious. We say, oh, come on, come on, God, do this now. You've got to do it right now. God expects us to believe him. So you ask yourself this question, do I really believe Him? Not just simply believe in God, I believe in God. No, do you believe Him? Do you believe what He says? Do you trust Him? Can you wait upon Him? Do you believe Him? Do you believe He's powerful? We can trust God to perform every promise He makes. God expects us to believe Him regardless of our circumstances. He expects us to believe Him regardless of our own feelings of inadequacy, insufficiency. He just simply says over and over and over and over and over, if you read this book, He keeps saying what? Trust me, trust me, trust me, trust me. Now, I have to qualify this by saying, There is nothing impossible with God when He has determined to do it. Anything God determines to do, He can accomplish. But there, because there is nothing impossible with Him. But that does not mean He will do everything we want Him to do. Oh. Because some things simply are not His will. Well, how do I know what His will is? Read his book. Just read his book. You, you know his will. I don't know about you, but as I, as I, as I continue to grow as a Christian, I, I look back over my life and I look back at all my requests and all the things I wanted to do and all the things he didn't do. And I've, my perspective has, has been, because now I have much broader perspective, my perspective is, God, thank you for not doing what I asked you to do. Thank you for protecting me from my prayers. Thank you for not answering that prayer. <laughs> Ooh. Mary's response was simple. It was straightforward. And yet immensely profound and powerful. I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. She, now listen to this. Notice, is there any place in the text there where 
where she responds to the angel and to Gabriel and to what he said, does, does, she, does she say anything like, but what about Joseph? What am I going to tell Joseph? What about my family, my parents? Oh, my mom is going to be so embarrassed. The neighbors. Oh, my gosh. They're going to stone me to death. What am I going to do about all that? <laughs> does she give evidence of that? Does she say anything like that? Would you? Uh-huh. Most of us go, oh, man, count the cost. Oh, I don't know if I want to get involved. I don't want to, find, I don't want to get involved in a small group. Ugh, yuck. <laughs> Just be involved in a small group. She didn't ask about Joseph. She didn't ask about... Who's, who people say, well, whose baby is this? How she should respond? It's God's child. Right. <laughs> I mean, think about this. Mary would have to face the stigma of unwed motherhood and the appearance of having had committed adultery for which the sentence was death by stoning. She would have to face all that. But in humble, obedient, submissive faith, Mary willingly trusted God to go before her and make her path straight. Whoa! Here it comes again. Trust in the Lord with most of your heart. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. What comes next? Don't lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will what? Make your path straight. That doesn't mean that there aren't going to be problems. That doesn't mean that there are going to be difficulties. But he will go before you. He's going to make your path straight. God, I trust you. I know there's going to be issues. I know there's going to be misunderstandings. I know there's going to be problems. Just become a pastor. Years ago, I told Ralph, who was our founding pastor, I said, I called him on the phone in Hawaii, and I said, you tricked me. (laughs) You look around, there's nobody stupid enough to follow you. There's old dumb old Zach, he'll do it. You, you, You can't possibly understand what my life is like. And I don't say that to, to draw. I'm not asking you to get you know, pity and all that sort of thing. I, I did, it's just that you don't know in advance what you're buying into. But once you're in it, and I'm in it way too deep. <laughs> I've been learning to trust God. I've been learning to acknowledge Him. I've been learning that He will make me. And He has been faithful, 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 faithful to me. And to us as a congregation. Amen. Now Mary's encounter here, this incredible encounter with the angel Gabriel comes to an end with this short, simple statement. And then the angel left her. His mission accomplished. Gabriel now goes back to the presence of the Lord from whence he came. 
The God-man was going to be born. The one and only Son of God, Jesus, who would save His people from their sins, the divine Redeemer, the Holy Son of God, the divine King will reign over a kingdom that will last forever. He will be born. You can take that to the bank. That was Gabriel's message to Mary. And her response was, I'm your servant. Let it be done to me as you have said. Wow, what a profound response. This account demonstrates that God's promises will be fulfilled in our life just as they were in Mary's life. God's promises. And the Bible is rich with his promises. He says, I love this promise in Philippians. He says, and Paul says to the Philippians, dirt poor people. They were amongst the, Corinth, the, the Macedonian churches that he writes about in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9. He says to them, he says, and my God shall meet all your needs according to his riches, his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. Is that a promise? Absolutely. Now, question. Is that a qualified promise or an unqualified promise? Let's have a vote. How many say, how many, how many would say that's a it's a qualified promise? How many say it's an unqualified promise? How many of you aren't voting? You're chicken. <laughs> Every time we do we have a, always have a vote, and some of you guess just scaredy phrase. It's a qualified promise. We have a habit of lifting verses out of the context, don't we? When you read that verse, you have to say, well, what's going on here? The Philippians had just given incredible gift to Paul. And these people were dirt poor. And he's thanking from their gift and he's reassuring them. Not to be afraid, not to, not to worry about, you know, we have nothing now. We gave it all to Paul. He said, no, no, don't worry. My God, my God will meet all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. Amen. Same principle. But this account also reveals that the sovereign God accomplishes his purposes purposes through willing people. Willing, obedient slaves and servants as he did through Mary. Without regard for the implications of the potential risks, Mary faithfully rested in the sovereign purpose of her Savior and Lord. That, may I suggest, is her true magnificence. If Mary is to be admired for anything, not worshipped, not venerated, just admired, it's her example. It's her example. God is still doing His work today. He's doing His work through His people who trust Him, who obey His word, who walk by faith, who humbly submit as servants to His will. Here I am, Lord. Send me. It's not about you and I. It's about Him. It's about surrendering to Him. May I suggest to you that surrender to Him is an absolute essential both for salvation 
and for service. Absolutely essential. Absolutely. Let me close with these few passages that are familiar to all of us. And they, they really do, I think, echo this, this truth. In the 24th chapter of Joshua, a familiar passage, I'm sure, to many, Joshua is giving a charge to the Israelites. And he's calling them to take a stand and do so today. Make up your mind. And a lot of us, a lot of us need to be challenged. Take a stand today. Listen to his words. Now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your forefathers worshipped beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods your forefathers served beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. There are gods all around us. The gods of wealth, money, the gods of sex, power, influence, appearance. We are immersed in a, in a, in a world where there are gods of all sorts that, that influence our lives. And, and the charge would be, look, get rid of that stuff. Decide today. What is it that's an anchor on your life that's slowing you down from serving the Lord? What is it that you want to hold on to that keeps you from wholeheartedly saying, Lord, I am your servant? Chuck it. Today. Make the decision today. Solomon. Solomon puts it this way. Here's the purportedly the wisest man to ever live at the end of his life. He says, I've seen it all, I've done it all. Now all has been heard, here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God, keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Man, he just boils it down. Walk in faith, obey God, He's number one. This other stuff really doesn't matter, doesn't count. Yeah, but I want my life to have fun and meaning. <laughs> I used that word fun one time in a message. And one of the brothers came up to me after and says, Pastor, the word fun is not in the Bible. <laughs> Paul puts it this way. Philippians chapter 2. He says, Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence. Continue. Continue to work out your salvation. And do so with what? Fear and trembling. Not just a casual, lackadaisical, laissez-faire attitude that so many Christians have. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Why? Because realize who is in you working. He's at work in you. So that you will, in fact, act according to His good purpose. It just comes down to surrender. It comes down to surrender. Yes, Lord. 
Does that mean everybody should be a vocational pastor or missionary? No, you'd be an avocational pastor, an avocational ministry. There's people all around us who need to be saved. People all around us who need to be discipled. People all around us who need to hear the good news. People all around us who need to be encouraged, strengthened, blessed. Besides, the money isn't all that good. Do it all vocationally. Serve God. Yes, Lord. I'm your servant. Let it be to me, as you've said. Amen? Father, thank you again for your grace and mercy, your provision, your word. Thank you, Lord, that these accounts have been recorded for us and for our benefit. Thank you that you love us. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the Holy Spirit who lives in us, by whom we are sealed for the day of redemption. Thank you that you are at work in us. Thank you that finally we can rest in you and in your shadow. That we can have confidence that you are at work. In spite of our circumstances, in spite of what we see, we trust you that you are working in us and through us. We simply surrender again and submit ourselves to you this morning. We say, Father, your will be done. We trust you. We give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen, church? Some of you need to make a decision today for Jesus, really, really. The elders will be down here in front. Come down and talk to them. Let them pray with you, encourage you. Elders, please come. Turn to your neighbor, share with your neighbor one thing that you learned this morning that's helpful to you, one thing that God spoke to your heart. After you share that, pronounce a blessing on your neighbor one more time. And if it's appropriate, only if it's appropriate, give your neighbor a holy hug and very possibly a holy kiss. Let's stand together and sing God's praises one more time before we dismiss, shall we? I'll stand.